Well, what a wonderful reminder that God does love us, and there is going to come a day when Christ returns for His bride, the bride that He loves. He so loved that He gave His life for His bride. And that's a wonderful truth, but we need to live in light of that truth. And so uh, we want to talk about that today as we turn to 1 Peter chapter 4. I'll read verses 7 through 11 here in just a little bit. You know, uh, about a decade ago or so, there was this TV show called, on the, I think it was on the National Geographic channel, it was called Doomsday Preppers, and it highlighted people who would, you know, prepare to survive what we might call uh, end-of-the-world catastrophes, disasters, uh, things like that, be it economic collapse, societal collapse, nuclear war, electromagnetic pulse, or, you know, those kind of, those kind of things. So the show would show, would show these people who had prepped, and then there would be these experts who would come on this consulting company and analyze what they did and make suggestions how they could make it better, um, you know, just so that they would be properly ready for such uh, an, occur- an occurrence, and partially due to the show and just partially because of, you know, the, the world the way it was, millions uh, took a lot of that to heart, and several websites went up telling you how to, pre- you know, be ready for such an event, and they'd tell you the supplies that you would need, you know, make sure you have two weeks' worth of dehydrated food, make sure you have a battery-powered radio, and, and things um, like that. Because, and that's probably a smart thing to do if you can afford it and you have a place to store er- everything, you know. There's nothing wrong with being ready. There's nothing wrong with being uh, prepared. But as important as it is to be ready for disaster in the physical sense and be ready for, uh, for things in, uh, I guess, the resource sense, uh, it would probably be good for us to be ready in the spiritual sense as well. And uh, we, we live as being prepared, live as being prepared for when we would meet the Lord, be it when the Lord calls us home or be it when he comes here. Are we ready for that? You know, in Peter's epistle, he's constantly reminding us that this place is not our home, that our time on earth is, is limited. We're just pilgrims who are passing through until we get to our final destination. And, and so part of living as a pilgrim is living with something in the back of our minds, the reminder that everything that we see on this earth is going to come to an end at some point. Jesus is going to return, and this world as it is now known will cease to exist, and there will be a new heaven and a new earth. Now we all, if you're Christian at least, you know, you believe that Christ will return at any moment whenever the Father tells him, son, it's time to go get your bride. Amen. Boy, I hope more people will get excited about that because guess who's the bride? We are. And Christ is going to come back for his bride. The bride who loves us the way that we just sang about and he's going to return he's going to usher in the end of the age he's going to usher in the eternal age and we're to be ready for it in fact jesus himself he told a lot of a lot he gave a lot of teachings he told a lot of parables with regard to being ready you know if you've ever read like matthew 25 and matthew 24 25 he told a lot of parables about being ready 
because we don't know when he's going to return. But just the fact that he is going to return ought to affect our choices and ought to affect the attitude that we have toward life. If we believe Scripture's testimonies, if we believe Scripture's testimonies that everything is going to come to an end, that should, ought to, we ought to take into consideration how we live right now in preparation for the end. Because if, this, if we're mere pilgrims and this world is going to burn one day, why would we live like this world is everything? Why, why, why would we find our pleasure and our value in a world that's going to burn up instead of finding our value in Christ? And so knowing it is going to end, we ready ourselves. I mean, we, we don't ready ourselves with the two weeks of dehydrated food or the battery-powered radio. You can have those things for the physical. But are we prepared in the spiritual? Peter wants to teach us today that because Christ's return is going to happen at any moment, we are called to ready ourselves spiritually. How? Through prayer, love, and service. That's how we live. And so I want to read verses 7 through 11. If you'll stand in reverence to the reading of God's holy word, as I read these verses, and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Peter says, for the culmination of all things is near, so be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of prayer. Above all, keep your love for one another fervent because Love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without complaining. Just as each one has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of the very grace of God. Whoever speaks, let it be with God's words. Whoever serves, do so with the strength that God supplies so that in everything God will be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and power forever and ever or as our song said, Christ, be magnified. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, may we not become so wrapped up in the world that we forget eternity. The world is going to end. Eternity will not. May we all be ready for when it comes. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So Peter says that the culmination of the world, the culmination of history, is near. Now, when Peter wrote this, that was about 2,000 years ago. And so when you read that, you might begin to wonder, I wonder if Peter's idea of near is a little bit different than my idea of near after 2,000 years. Well, of course, we know that God, in God's economy, a 1,000 years is like a day. So we can't think that there's any deception here because the biblical writers thought that Christ's return was near. And every day it just got more near. And what Peter and the other biblical writers and what Jesus himself taught is that Christ's return and the end can happen at any time, and we would use, so we use the word imminent when talking about Christ's return, meaning that it's ready to take place. Nothing is preventing Christ's return from happening other than God's own sovereign plans 
and purposes. And there is going to come a day when God's sovereign plan happens. Whatever God wants to happen, happens. Whatever he wants to bring about will be brought about. Everything will come to completion. He will send his son to usher in the eternal kingdom. But only God the Father knows when that is going to be. From our perspective, it could happen at any moment. And so as Christian pilgrims, we live in light of the fact that Christ's return could happen now or at any moment near now. And so Peter gives us a way to how we live spiritually. We, we spiritually prepare by the choices we make, by the way we live, so that we're ready for when it is that Christ returns. So Peter says, since the culmination is near, we ready ourselves in three ways. The first way, he says, is we ready ourselves with prayer. We ready ourselves with prayer. Now look at your Bibles and look at verse 7 again. It says, for the culmination of all things is near. So be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of prayer. So Peter says, in light of the fact that the end is near, there's a certain mindset that, that Christians are supposed to take on. He first says, we are to be self-controlled. The word means to be able to think straight. We might say it means to have a cool head about things, to be even-keeled. He also says to be sober-minded, which means to keep your composure so that you're able to think things through clearly. So when we bring these two words together, self-controlled, sober-minded, you know, we could say that he means have your head on straight. Get your head on straight. Because he's warning us against two things. First, he's warning us not to have our mind so engulfed in sin and the world that we're not thinking the things of God. That we're so worldly-minded, we are not thinking of the heavenlies. We are not to allow the world to distract us from what's most important. We are to get our mind out of the lower, out of, if we want to say, you know, so to speak, get it out of the gutter, get it out from what's below, get it focused on that which is above, get it focused on the things of God. Stop letting the world be your everything. Let Christ be your everything. But there's a second mindset that he's warning us against. And he's warning us against, he says, yes, the culmination is near. But don't let that cause you to go into a panic or a frenzy over every world event that happens. Don't get into such a panic about every world event that happens that you just go in, you worry so much, you go into hysteria, you go into a panic. Yes, we, we look forward to Christ's return, but that, that's an encouraging thing. It's not, you know, the, just the thought of Christ's return and then thinking, okay, does this, you know, reading the newspaper or just now looking on the internet and thinking, okay, does this world event fit in? Does this world event fit in? Well, and then going to a hysteria, Peter's like, no. Look, just the, the idea that Christ's return is an encouragement and it should encourage us to think the things of God. He's warning against going to what I might call the chicken little syndrome or chicken little mode when you, one, you know, something comes over the internet that something happened and we go into the sky is falling. You know, the sky is falling. 
Christ's return is to be an encouragement, not a time for hysteria. We are to live in light of the fact that Christ's return is imminent. But it, how it's going to happen, when it's going to happen, trying to fit all the pieces together is not to be our sole obsession. It is not to consume our minds. Christ is to consume our minds. He wants us to live in the here and now in light of the fact that he will return someday. You know, when COVID hit and there were riots and all those crazy things were happening, all sorts of people were crying out, it's the end of the world, it's the end of the world. They got themselves in a frenzy. They tried to whip up everybody else in a frenzy. Well, you know what? It may be the end of the world. Christ, Christ may return before I finish preaching and all God's people said, amen. Let that happen. But then again, it might not. How do we live now? If Christ is returning or if he's not. You know, because COVID wasn't the first pandemic that ever hit the world. And if the Lord does not return soon, it won't be the last pandemic that ever hit the world. The riots that we saw were not the first riots to ever hit this nation. And if the Lord's return is tarries for a while, there won't be the last riots that we've ever seen. They might be signs. They might not be. But world events should not cause us to lose our focus. We are to be self-controlled and sober-minded. Keep your head. Keep your head. Get your head on straight. Chuck Swindoll wrote, he said, having sound judgment and sober spirit means that when natural disaster hits, you don't panic, or when an official gets elected you don't like, or the nightly news seems packed with bad news. Don't worry. Don't jump off a tall building either. This also means you don't quit your job because Jesus might come back today. You keep your nose to the grindstone and continue, you continue your work and life with an ongoing sense of purpose in light of the unknown hour of Christ's coming. You continue to live for Christ. And Peter says here there's a specific reason to be self-controlled and sober-minded. And it's so we can dedicate ourselves to prayer. Don't lose your head, and your head is scattered all over the place. Get your head in the game so that you can be praying about everything that's going on around you. Because you're not going to be in a position to pray if all you're focused on is your sin, the world, your obsession with events, which may or may not indicate the end times, get your mind focused on Christ, get your mind focused on the only one who can save, and pray. Pray to Him. Use your time praying. Right? So, so the survivalists say... To be ready, have all this equipment. Peter says, to be ready, have your head in prayer. Sports players, they work out and they practice so they're ready for the game. 
Peter says, work out your mind and spirit in the gymnasium of prayer. Be self-controlled and silver-minded so you can pray. This is going on in the world. I'm going, I'm going to watch every possible YouTube video that there is about this, that, and the other thing. How about instead you pray about it? Not that going to YouTube is bad, but let's face it. If we're watching more YouTube than we are praying, which is, you know, the one that's, or, you know, fill in the blank with whatever your particular thing might, might be. He said pray. Instead of being worldly, pray. Instead of being spiritually lazy, pray. Be self-controlled, be sober-minded so that you can pray. You know, when he wrote this, I wonder if he had in the back of his head a memory a memory from the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus asked him and, and James and, and John to come and pray. And instead, Jesus found them sleeping. And maybe when Peter's writing this, these words echoed in the back of his mind when Jesus told him in Matthew 26, 41, stay awake and pray that you will not fall into temptation. The Spirit is willing but the flesh is weak. Stay awake and pray. Get your mind in the game and ready yourself in prayer. It is not time to have a wandering mind that obsesses over this, that, and the other thing. It is a time to have your mind focused on Christ in prayer. As Paul would say, pray without ceasing. And so let us ready ourselves in prayer. The culmination of of all things is near, ready yourself in prayer. But there is another way that Peter says to ready ourselves. Secondly, today he says we are to ready ourselves through love. Ready ourselves through love. Ready yourself through a life of love. Not the love of the world. Not the, the, the love that the world says, this is what love means. But the way that God defines love in his word. Look again at what Peter says in verses 8 and 9. He says, Above all, keep your love for one another fervent, because love covers a multitude of sins. So show hospitality to one another without complaining. Now, you know, the, Peter's epistle is filled with a lot of wonderful truths, a lot of great wisdom. Some words that we Christians really need to consider. Reread 1 Peter and constantly read it. There's wonderful truths here, but here's, here's something that he says. I have something, I've said all these things in the first three chapters, but now I have something that is above all. Now when the, the you know, when Peter says something is above all, you know, we better listen to what he says is above all. It's probably top priority. That is, when Peter says something is above all, you know, that, that's going to be your, your main mission. You know, those in the military, they get lots of orders, but their superiors might say, you know, this is your primary mission and everything else wraps around that. Well, Peter says, I've said a lot of things, but above all, keep your love fervent for one another. Keep your love for one another fervent. Love is the primary mission because it's love that we show and demonstrate when we do everything else. 
the love for God, the love for others especially. And this reminds us of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, 13. Now these three things remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. And we know that John the Apostle was the apostle of love. And he warns us in 1 John 4, verses 7 and 8. Dear friends, let us love one another because love is from God. And everyone who loves has been fathered by God and knows God. The person who does not love does not know God because God is love. If you truly know God through Jesus Christ, you will love, and especially you will love fellow Christians because it says, keep your love for one another. Keep your love for one another. You churches, he's writing to these churches in Asia Minor, keep your love for one another. Love other Christians. And he says to keep it fervent. That word fervent, it it was used in sports. It was talking about an athlete that stretched and strained every fiber of muscle that he or she had in order to reach the finish line, in order to win the game. You will exert all effort to show love to people, most especially the church. And as the old DC talk song said, love is a verb. It's It's not emotionalism. It's an action. And one of the actions that love entails is described here by Peter when he says love covers a multitude of sins. Now this is a reference to Proverbs 10.12 that says hatred stirs up dissension, but love covers all transgressions. So what Peter is saying is, okay, if if you're going to hate someone, you look at that person, you look at all their faults, you look at everything that they do wrong, and you try and throw it back in their face and you try and pick a fight. But if you love someone, you will easily forgive and overlook other people's faults, especially considering that your own faults have been overlooked. Now that does not mean we don't call sin, sin. I mean, sin is sin. But it does mean that we do not hold grudges. It does does mean that we do not hold unto bitterness. It does mean that we forgive. We don't build up some sort of wall in the relationship. Love is willing to work things out. Love is willing to communicate. Love is willing to forgive. Love is willing to overlook. Because this is how God demonstrated love toward us, right? Jesus died to cover our sins so that our sins would not be held over our heads any longer. In Christ, God does not hold our sins over our heads ever again. So if, if, if God in Christ doesn't hold our sins over us, who are we to hold sins over other people? That's why the second greatest commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. And we all love ourselves a lot. And we don't want other people to hold our faults over us we don't want other people to hold our sins and faults over our heads why why would we think that we ought to do that to other people if you love like christ loved you will allow love to cover a multitude of sins so i know i i think weird but it made me think like this so when your kids are little you know they don't want to eat good food that's good for them you know they want to eat junk but you're going to feed it to them anyway 
And so you, you have their dinner in front of them, and there's green beans on there. They don't like green beans, but they like the mashed potatoes that are there. So what do you do? You take the mashed potatoes, and you put them over the green beans, and you cover up the green beans. You hide the green beans in the mashed potatoes so that they'll eat it. Now, the mashed potatoes don't make the green beans disappear, but it makes them more bearable. It makes the distaste go away. We all sin against one another all the time, but if you cover sin in love, you don't think about the distaste of that sin any longer. You cover sins in love. It will have no bearing on the relationship. And, and so he says love. Because love covers a multitude of sins. It's a reminder to us of what Jesus said to Peter. You know, Peter said, well, should I forgive someone seven times? Thinking, whew, seven times is a lot. And Jesus said, nope. Seventy times seven, the numbers of perfection. Seven tens are numbers of perfection. You are to perfectly forgive people. Doesn't mean if they're in sin that you just put up with the sin without, you know, telling them that they're in sin, but your love will cover that sin so when they do ask for forgiveness, when they do seek relationship, you're not going to allow that to bear weight. But there's another action of love that Peter mentions, and that is hospitality. In, in Peter's day, this was a great demonstration of love because guess what? They didn't have holiday inns back then. And the inns, a lot of the inns that they had in the villages and cities, they also doubled as places of immorality. And so if you, for a godly person to find a good place, they would need to depend on the hospitality of others. And so, especially for like traveling missionaries and evangelists, they would need the hospitality of fellow Christians. And, you know, hospitality in those days also meant that you allowed your house to be the place where the church meant they didn't have church buildings back then. And so hospitality was opening up your home for the, uh, for the, the assembly of believers. Now, you know, things obviously culturally are a little bit different, so hospitality might not look the same, although it can include opening your home to others, but it goes beyond that. Hospitality is making yourself and your resources available for other people and for the needs of, of the church. Letting, letting yourself be used as a blessing to other people. You know, maybe there's someone in the area that has no family, so you bring them to family dinners and events. Maybe someone is lonely, so you open up your schedule to spend time with them. Maybe someone has a financial need, so you open up your wallet to them. Show hospitality during church services. If you see somebody sitting by themselves, go sit with them. If you see somebody new or somebody you don't know, go talk with them. There's so many ways to show hospitality, and it is a demonstration of love. Think. And really, I guess we could connect the whole be, you know, sober-minded and, and self-controlled thing here. So you can pray. Have your head on straight so you can pray, but have your head on straight so you can love. So you can show love to other people. 
We ready ourselves with expressions of love. But there's a third way of readiness. We ready ourselves through service. We ready ourselves through service. Look at verses 10 and 11 again. Peter says, just as each one has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of the varied grace of God. Whoever speaks, let it be with God's words. Whoever serves, do so with the strength that God supplies so that in everything, God will be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. So Peter reminds us something that Paul also talks about is that every Christian is given a gift of some sort, a spiritual gift that is to be used in service to Christ. We are called to be good stewards of that gift, meaning we are to manage it well and do something with it. We do not want the gift that God has given us to be starved, to be ignored, to be neglected. We take the gift that God has given us and we nurture it and we use it so that it doesn't die off. We, are, we have been given a stewardship, he says. We have been given a management. And we are to take care of it. It made me think of, you know, we, we have two cats and a dog, and, and when we go on vacation, we, we get folks to come to the house and take care of the animals. Several of you have done that for us, and we're grateful for that. But, you know, when we, we, we put in these fine folks a stewardship, they have been given a stewardship of our animals, and with that stewardship comes an expectation. Don't let my animals die, right? And I know that sounds like I'm setting the bar low. Look, just don't let my animals die. That's good enough. But you know what I mean. You know, feed them. Let, let the dog go out. The cats, you know, they do their own thing. But um, you, you've been given a stewardship. Don't, don't neglect it. So Peter is saying the same thing. God has given each of us a gift, an ability of some sort. Don't neglect it. Use it to serve the church. It, it, don't, allow that, don't allow that gift to be ignored. Don't allow it to die in you. Use it. And so Paul, Peter's teaching falls in line with, with, with Paul's teaching. Now, you know, Paul, Romans, 1 Corinthians, you know, he gave long lists of possible um, spiritual gifts. Uh, Peter doesn't do that. He kind of gives us two broad categories, the gifts of speech and the gifts of service, but I guess you can take Paul's list of gifts and then fit them in one of those two categories. Like the gifts of speech would be teaching, preaching, exhortation, you know, prophecy, but not prophecy like, ooh, I can tell the future, but prophecy of taking God's word, applying it to the modern day. Uh, Peter also, uh, you know, Peter says, Okay, if you have that gift that, that is a speaking gift, he says, use God's words. That means you don't use that gift just to promote your own opinion. Don't use that gift to just get your own ideas out there. Use that gift using God's words to fill the hearts and minds of those. Let what comes out of your mouth be God's words. If you exhort someone, if you encourage someone, don't use pop psychology, use God's word. If you teach or preach, don't teach or preach the latest blog, use God's word. So if you have a, a speaking gift, use God's word, not yourself. And then he says for gifts of service, you know, that might be mercy, helps, 
gifts, you know, giving, things similar to that. He says, don't use your own strength. Don't use your own wisdom. Use the strength that God supplies. God supplies the wisdom. God supplies the strength. Use that. Don't use your gift to do your own thing. And here's the thing, and then something I want to continually remind people, because sometimes people think, yeah, but my gift isn't that important, so the church wouldn't miss it if I'm not using my gift. Oh, yes, we will. There is no one singular gift that is more important than any other. God gave you a gift to use within the church, and whether you think it's big, whether you think it's small, whether you think it's private, whether you think it's public, whatever, he gave it to you, he wants you to use it. And and Peter says, your gift was given to you for one singular purpose. That purpose was not to be a show-off. That purpose was not so that you could make your name great. Peter says, the singular purpose for your gift is so that God is glorified through Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is glorified through us. As we sang today, We use our gift so Christ is magnified. Not us, but Christ is magnified. That's what we aim at with our service. Part of being ready. We are ready through prayer. Having the mind, get our minds straightened out. We're ready through prayer. We're ready through love. We are ready through service. If you, if you ever look at your day, like how much you spend on day, and I'll, I'll, I'll kind of conclude with this thought. Um, you, you think about your day, you spend a whole lot of time getting ready for different stuff. You spend the morning getting all ready, you know, getting yourselves ready for the day, that takes time. You spend hours cleaning the inside and outside of your house so the house is ready if someone would happen to come by or something. If we are spending all that time getting ready for that, how much more should we be spending time to be ready for the Lord's return? Because it's near. I don't know exactly what near means, but I do know this. Today, it's a lot more near than it was yesterday. So who knows, are we ready? You know, I was thinking about uh, back in the the days of school, you know, sometimes the teacher would need to step out of the classroom and somewhat trust the kids to get something done. So they, you know, the teacher might give this worksheet or something for the kids to do. I'm going to, you work on this worksheet, I'm going to step out. When I come back, be ready to go over that worksheet. So the worksheet is handed out. The teacher steps out. Now there's a group of kids that will, once the teacher is out, you know, the cat's away, the mice will play, they're going to do all sorts of shenanigans and do whatever. But then there are those dutiful students who have that worksheet in front of them. They're going to work on that worksheet. The teacher is going to come back again, maybe in a matter of just a few minutes. There's going to be some who are ready. There's going to be some who are not. Christian, which are you? If you haven't made yourself spiritually ready, come to the altar and pray and commit yourself to prayer. You know, commit yourself to having self-controlled minds, sober, being sober-minded, so that you can pray, 
so that you can love, so that you can serve until he returns and you're ready. But what about those who are not Christians? There was this movie called The End of Spear that tells a story about five missionaries. It included Jim Elliott and Nate Saint. Um, they, they wanted to get to the Wadani people in Ecuador because they were killing each other off in intertribal and kind of warfare, whatever. They wanted, to, they wanted to get the gospel to them so they wouldn't die without the gospel. And so in the movie, Nate uh, is preparing to go on this trip and his son asked him, you know, okay, so if the Wadani people attack, would you all defend yourselves? Would you have guns and would you defend yourselves? And this was Nate's response to his son. Son, we can't shoot the Wadani. They're not ready for heaven, but we are. Are you ready for heaven? Are you ready to die or are you ready for the Lord's return? The only way to be ready is to place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. He died for you. He rose for you. That's the only way. Because the gate is narrow. The road is tight. And if you're not ready, the coming is near. The consummation of all things is near. Don't leave here today without being ready. Because he loved you enough to die for you. We sang today about God's love. That's how he demonstrated his love. He demonstrated his love toward you and that he sent his son, Christ, who died for you. And so during our invitation, come up here. Give your life to Jesus Christ.